It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to still live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor, and my co-host Michelle Sharp is not feeling well today, and so she is not with us. We're hoping she feels better and is back with us soon. But today I'm excited to introduce to all of you my dear friend, Julie Lee. Hi, Julie. Hey, how's it going? Oh, we are so grateful that you are here. So Julie and I met kind of randomly We both live in Utah. We didn't grow up together. We don't really have a lot of common friends. We never knew each other until we ended up in San Diego and uh, crossed paths at a kind of a little bit of a speaking event where she was telling us about the podcast she has that is called I See You. And I was a brand new widow and trying to find my own way in this, this new world of grief and everything. And there was just something in Julie that drew me right to her, this light, this love, and this real, real is just the word. Julie, I love how real you are. And I'm grateful for you to share with us today a little bit of that real. Uh, sometimes real is raw. Sometimes real hurts and is hard. And unfortunately, sometimes a lot of us try to avoid real. <laughs> we don't really like to be real because real can be a lot to deal with. But Julie, you've just always been so genuine. And you've been through your own share of ups and downs and struggles and trials. And yet you don't just come out on top. You come out lifting others to the top. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And I don't want to keep rambling on. I want you to introduce yourself to to our listeners. And then we're going to kind of talk about the journey you've been on and those ups and downs and the great things that you're doing now and some of these projects you've got in the works going forward. So tell us who in the world is Julie Lee? (laughs) Well, it probably depends on who you ask. Um, To my kids, I'm a lot of things, you know, mostly like the chef, you know, uh-huh. um, and the tur- the turning on the movie person, um, the person with all the power. No, I I'm thank you so much. That's such a sweet introduction. And yes, we are dear friends. We talked on the phone all the way up to this studio. So it's just so fun to be doing this with you. So I am 31 years old. I'm married to my husband, Rob, who I dearly love. And we have two children, Sam and Lydia. And I'm a native to Utah. We've moved around quite a bit as my husband went to grad school at Notre Dame and as we uh, took an internship somewhere. But we've landed back here in Utah, and it's fun to be home. My education background is elementary education, and I taught second grade for a few years. But really what got me started on the journey of now as a professional speaker is in my 20s, when I was 21, I had my first uh, mental breakdown. Now, I had grown up with a dad that had that was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and was unmedicated. And that was just at a time, you can imagine, he was born in the 50s. So uh, that was at a time when mental illness, medication therapy, psychiatry, these things just weren't talked about as openly. And medication certainly just wasn't as good and yeah. not as advanced. And so it was really a hard, shameful thing in our family. And I don't want to speak for I'm one of seven kids. I'm number six. 
Um, and of course, my parents have their own story as well. So I don't want to speak for them. Uh, I can just only tell my story, my perspective. And from my perspective and my story, it was kind of a secretive thing. And um, it was there was a lot of pain there. And we had a lot of happy times as a family. And we had a lot of very challenging, difficult You know, Julie, I think you've hit on a couple of things that I think are worth mentioning or or kind of pausing for. You mentioned that not the medication one is wasn't as good as it is now and that psychiatry and those things weren't talked about much back then. But if they were talked about, they were talked about in that word that you used shameful. It was a it was a shameful thing. Um, I you and I share this history that my father also really struggled with mental health in a time where that was not a thing. It was not discussed about discussed. And it was certainly frowned upon if it ever was um, to the point where we do tend sometimes to sweep it under the rug. And it's just a quiet problem that maybe we'll not want to acknowledge because maybe if we don't acknowledge it, it will go away or we'll tell someone they should just cheer up or knock it off or get over it or pull yourself together. And so I appreciate that you mentioned that as, as something of past generations, I think we're still not all the way there in our generation. I think we're making progress, but there is sometimes that stigma and that heaviness um, that keeps us from acknowledging that mental health is an aspect of our health. So thank you for sharing that about your own family background and and just identifying the fact that the historically our culture has not known what to do with mental health, but we're learning and hopefully we're improving. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I did a podcast episode called Compassion Across Generations, where I talk specifically about this, about being able to have compassion to the generations past that, frankly, we're a lot better at some things than we are now. Um, and I think that there's things that we've improved upon from past generations. And I, so I really think we can all have compassion for each other. Hey, yeah, Julie, so, tell us again, oh, tell us the name of your podcast in that episode, because I guarantee every single one of us is going to hit pause right now and go listen to it or listen to it at the end of this episode. So it's called Compassion Across Generations. The name of my whole podcast is ICU, which is the same name as my book and a program I'm implementing now. But so ICU, I-S-E-E-Y-O-U. Okay. And I want to say it's episode i don't know 20 maybe but that might be wrong maybe well, we, I can we can it find it and link to it yeah for notes. sure yeah we'll put it in the show thank notes. you thank you um, for that yeah of course all the resources we can have so i really left that home loving my family dearly feeling an intense sense of loyalty and also being very ready to start my own chapter where that was never a part of my life again that mental illness would never touch my own family and fact, when I first married my husband, or excuse me, when we first started dating, like three days in, I like interrogated him. We weren't even that serious, but I was like, do you have any history of mental health? Like, do you ever have bad days? Do you have like, I was just grilling him because I was so committed to never marrying someone that I knew I'd never struggle because, you know, like you can probably tell I'm like pretty driven, happy, bubbly. And so I knew that would never be an issue for me. Uh, but my greatest fear would be to marry someone that had that, even though I had all the compassion, I just felt like emotionally I couldn't hold that space for someone with with what I'd experienced as a little kid and all growing up. Uh, And so when I was 21 and I experienced my first panic attack, my life was over is how I felt. Um, I I felt like I was putting something on an altar, something that I had so much hatred and grief and pain and trauma over. And for it to show itself inside me was something I, I thought I could never survive and certainly never thrive with. Um, Can you give us the circumstances surrounding that 21-year-old you? So I was doing student teaching out of state. 
I went to Brigham Young University here for my undergrad education, and I went out to a different state to do a student teaching experience at the same state my husband had an internship in. And I was working with a mentor who, frankly, was was very toxic, uh, was very unkind both to the students and to me, and was also very unkind to herself. And we often find that with people that are really hurting inside, that they tend to bleed that out onto others. And while I don't want to label her and everyone can change, and this is, once again, my story, my perspective, but it was a very difficult environment to thrive in, I think, both as students and certainly for me. And so I just really worked myself into the ground. You know, I'd had professors love me. I'd been observed teaching dozens of times, and I felt like I was a really good teacher when I went to that school. And it was a really difficult school. It was, you know, K through four, but we were having see-through backpacks, so kids so we could see if kids brought knives. There were dead dogs on the streets. It was just wow. a really tough area, an inner city area, you know, surrounded in cement that was very hard. And so I'm sure that part of that may have contributed to her overall mental well-being and the way she treated others. Maybe she had, um, you know, gotten down over the years of trying to help. Yeah, a very hard life, hard circumstances. Very hard life, yeah. And so I was working really hard, long hours with her and her Um, criticism and looking down on me. And I was so committed that she would love me because I just thought, why wouldn't anyone like me? I'm a nice person. And about five weeks into it, I came home and experienced my first panic attack. Um, I had been in the bathroom that day during, during lunch in the faculty bathroom, just stifling back the vomit that was trying to come up. I had stopped sleeping. I'd stopped eating um, because I would, I would throw it up if I ate. Um, And I didn't, see the warning signs of what was going on that, that I needed to stop. Um, I just kept pushing until I broke. So I came home, had that first panic attack, and I was sure my life was over, you know? Oh, my goodness. Julie, I, I'm picturing you so young, 21. I mean, that's barely out of high school. You're you're young. You're already yeah. married. You're already done with college or finishing up that student teaching at the end of college. That's a lot and then you mentioned being a Utah native. I imagine the neighborhood in which you grew up didn't look much like the neighborhood where you were teaching. And those differences, some of those hard environments you described. We're going to take a quick break and then come back in. And we want you to tell us what that day looked like, that panic attack. Um, a lot of people listening have experienced that. A lot of people have not. And so maybe you could walk us through kind of what that that felt and, and uh, what that experience was like. And then we want to walk through what happens next. We'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, and we're back. Julie, I'm going to ask you a question. Feel free to say no if it's too personal. Will you describe to us that panic attack when you're a young 21-year-old woman? I know many people listening have experienced the physical nature of a panic or anxiety attack, but many people have not, and it, it seems like it's, oh, you're just worried for a minute, or, oh, you're just anxious, go calm down. Do you mind walking us through what that really was like? 
Yeah, for sure. I wanted to say no just to throw you off, but I, <laughs> of course, of course. No, I'm not going to um, do that. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I make inappropriate jokes at serious times, but we are about to get pretty real here. Um, no, I'm so happy to walk you through it. So for me, and mine might even be termed an anxiety attack because I have listened to people describe their panic attacks a little bit differently than what I not only experienced, uh, that first time, but what I then experienced for years and years afterwards. So for me, what it was like is my chest hurts a lot. I was shaking and crying on the bed, almost like convulsing a little bit. Um, and I could not stop crying. I couldn't find the will to make things still within my body um, or fi- just find the physical energy. It felt impossible. I was certain that my life was never going to be happy again that I and I was terrified of any choice I remember my husband coming over to the bed and laying next to me and trying to hold me as I was shaking uncontrollably and him you know like rubbing my shoulders and saying like it's going to be okay we're going to be all right and feeling so much pain that he I knew that he was lying I knew it wasn't true that he didn't realize how broken I was in that moment and that I was I felt incapable of tying my own shoes, that I saw no way out. I saw no way that I could move forward, that my life would be successful, that I would be anything like the kind of woman I wanted to be. And as I, I felt, I knew that I could never be a mom, and that I was incapable of taking care of another human child, and that I, I felt afraid to even, I felt completely terrified to be by myself for sure. I don't know. Is that enough description? Yeah, I know a lot us. of people, a lot of people describe it as feeling like they're having a heart attack. I've had a lot of friends discuss that and like they're going to die. I felt like I was going to die because not, I don't Just know if a, I felt like despair. I was going to die because of the physical, yeah, because of the physical sensation, but I felt like I was going to die because I saw no way that this would ever end unless I died, if that oh makes sense. Gosh. So um, I, I knew, like, I, I say that, but in the moment I knew this would never end. Like, there was no part of me that hoped it would end. Um, and so that that was, I don't know if that's a panic attack or if, if psychiatry would call that an anxiety attack. Yeah. Uh, it might fall closer in line with an anxiety attack because I don't remember having the feeling that I was having a heart attack. So can you tell if us how it, yeah. it does? And thank you for describing that. How did that particular attack end or how long did it last? And then what? You said several years. Walk us through from 21 until now and, and that journey of the mental health you thought you were sure you would never struggle with when you had seen that in your own home as a child. Yeah, you know, that night I remember at some point sitting on the counter while my husband, I, I don't know if he was shaving or needed to brush his teeth before bed and shaking and crying and us talking about what do we do now and begging him to quit his internship and that we had to go home that day. And, and he was in this tough spot where he was like, I have to finish this, you know, like our livelihood depends a lot on the job I get and us trying to figure out what we would do. Um, you know, I got through that night. I, I, I just had to rely on his words and have a kind of faith in him and what he was saying to me and believe that over. I couldn't, I felt that I couldn't trust myself and I had to believe on what he said. And so I just didn't let myself be alone with my own thoughts. And I was able to fall asleep that night, luckily. And in the next morning, I called my mentor at BYU, a sweet lady. She's now the the elementary school principal at Lehigh Elementary here in um, Utah. Her name's Carrie Hundley. And she had observed and watched me teach 
many times. And I called her bawling and shaking, and she did not even recognize me on the phone. She just said, what happened to you out there? What happened to you? And I tried to describe what had been going on, and she gave me incredible counsel. She said, I need you to write an email to that teacher, and you're going to say that you have a a personal health emergency and that you are going to have to discontinue your teaching. And we are going to, you know, you guys finish the internship out there for your husband. We're going to get you out here and we're, I'm going to get you back on the on your feet because you are a teacher. You were born a teacher. I know you. I know how incredible you are. And this is not you. And we're going to figure it out. So I did that. I, I sent an email to the teacher. And that week, my sister, she just found this new show that had come out called Downton Abbey. She's like, I know what you need to do. I mean, I remember writing an email to my family and saying, Robin, I don't know what's going on. Here's what's happened. I am in a really bad place. I had a I'd had a church leader come over and give me a special um, blessing, and I I just binged Downton Abbey through that week. And I would go on runs, and I would eat healthy, and I would do everything I could. And it was panic attack after panic attack after panic attack. I did better once my husband was home because I had another voice of reason there to help me understand what was going on. Um, but I was not. I talked to a mental health professional on the phone that lived in the area. Uh, but it was very surface level, um, wor- you know, put your worries in a box, that kind of thing, which I'm not saying isn't helpful, but I was in a, I was in a different kind of crisis than that. Uh, and we realized very quickly that I could not stay there because I, I couldn't be alone. Um, things were getting worse, not better. I was starting to sink in a, a very deep depression. And so we flew me home a week later. We flew me home to Utah, and my husband had to stay there alone. And I'm feeling emotionally even talking about it because it was such a painful thing. Um, we both were bawling at the airport. We had no idea. I had one sample pool for what a mental health crisis looked like, what depression, what anxiety looked like, and that was my father. And um, he wasn't a very happy man most of the time. And so it was very terrifying to both of us. He put me on the plane, and I cried the entire way there. And a stewardess brought me a box of Kleenex, and I just laid my face on the window and cried and tried to pushed back a panic attack for four hours until I I got to Utah. And my husband talked to me about how he went and got in the car in his parking lot, in the parking lot at the airport, and just cried because he didn't know what was happening with his wife. And, you know, we'd only been married just a little under two years at point. And um, it's a really sacred day for us where we were just one, one foot in front of the other and had no idea what was about to happen to us. I got home and I ended up being able to stay with my sister, who uh, people that listen to my podcast know a little bit more about uh, this very special sister that I have. But she took me in and took care of me. And, um, you know, I got into back into a classroom real quick. Carrie was like, okay, let's get you back in. She even put me with a teacher that I'd worked with before. We were trying to make the circumstances as familiar as possible. And I went in and I only made it one hour in the classroom before I left crying. And I told the teacher, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And I walked out, and I was so sure I would never walk into another school again. I went home, and I laid on my sister's couch, and I just laid in her basement, and I just put a blanket over my head and laid there. Terry gave me a phone call later that afternoon, and she left a message I didn't pick up, and she said, we are going. I heard what happened. We're going to do this one day, one hour, one minute, one second at a time if we have to. We're going we're gonna to do this. You're going to do it, and we're going to do it together. Let's try again tomorrow. And so I did, I went back the next day and I think something about knowing that I wasn't trapped, you know, in my student teaching experience, I was 
states away from my college. I knew no one around me. I had no friends. I think something about having Carrie say, we're going to do it a minute at a time. I thought, okay, I can do a minute. If that's all I have to do is a minute today, then, then I think I could do that. And I, I, you know, I never missed another day. I don't think. Um, but that, that first time Carrie came to observe me in the classroom and, and in the behind scenes, I'm, I'm going to therapy and I'm getting on a, a really great antidepressant to help balance things out. Uh, but that first time Carrie came in to observe me, she sat in the back of the classroom. She watched me get through my lesson. And afterwards, we sat down together where you usually kind of debrief what happened and how the lesson went, what you could improve as a teacher. And she said to me, she handed me the rubric for scoring for all the feedback and comments. She flipped it over on the table and just pushed it to the side. And she grabbed my hand and she said, we can talk about that later how are you doing? I need to know how you're doing. Um, and that to me is what a leader looks like and a mentor looks like. And I fell apart. I cried to her and we sat there and she held my hand and we talked and that's what she did for me. And I didn't need that every time afterwards when I taught a lesson or when I was observed and when I took over the classroom, I became someone who gained a lot of confidence in myself that was still bruised. I was able to finish and I, I finished college and I became to be a pretty fantastic teacher, I think. Uh, but man, it scarred me. And, and I was so excited to move forward in my life. You know, a lot of people will have like one mental health crisis. And a lot of, a lot of people know what to do with it and they don't have that happen again. They know the warning signs. That was not the case for me for the next six to seven years. I was on and off medication in and out of therapy. Um, I had a visit to the ER once and Though there are more details to all of those stories, but just for time's sake, and so that we can get to the incredible, light-filled, hopeful part of my journey, which is to come, it was a really difficult challenge that I have struggled with, especially because I watched that growing up. And so I had all my personal emotional trauma as a, a very small child, memories from when I was five, to then have that darkness, what felt like, come inside me and live inside me when I felt like I had worked so hard to create a home environment that was so different from that. I think listeners maybe can relate to that, uh, maybe with different things. But for me, it was much more than just struggling with my mental health. There was so much baggage to it and still is, still things I need to sift through. You know, it wasn't until the summer of 2017 when I had another rock bottom and I was, in a, I was begging my husband to institutionalize me. And... I, I, after listening to enough professionals, doctors, psychiatrists, counselors who were watching me do, do, do to get out of this. I mean, it's like I was, you know, I, I was Googling lists of how to not be depressed. I learned a new musical instrument. I journaled every day. I cut out sugar. I cut out caffeine. I rubbed oils. I did all of this. I mean, if you were a witch and you had a spell, I'd take it. I did it. I was going to get this behind me. And I had enough professionals finally say to me, you know, like, my therapist, especially, she's like, I am in by no means a pill pusher. I am all for doing the work. She said, but I have never had a client that I've seen do so much and not have the results we should be seeing. And she said, I think it would be a really healthy idea for you to consider medication permanently. And, you know, there's something about looking at my kids in the face. They were six months and two years old at the time. They're sweet little faces and have bright blue eyes like me and having suicidal thoughts in my mind at the same time to make you get real clear about what's most important and what's not. And I tell you whether or not you take medication, not important. 
Uh, and I'm sad for myself. I'm sad that it took me so long to shed off some of that shame that I that I grew up believing and to get serious about what my stewardship is and what it's not. And the people that I am in charge of is my little family here. And I would do anything to um, make sure those kids had a mom here, first of all, but also a mom that was healthy and that was going to teach them how to live a thriving life. And I knew that I had, I could see that if I was not well, that I could not be that kind of person. And while I had a hard time mustering up the courage to do that for myself, to have the motivation to take care of myself because I had so much self-loathing inside, I could look at those little kids and I could do it for them. They were what I needed. And so I got on some new, really fantastic medication. My antidepressant wasn't working at the time. And I, I was do or die. And I was not going to try to get off it. I was not going to try to get out of therapy and do without any resources and go at it alone. And I ever since, I have never gotten off my meds since. And I, I still go to maintenance therapy about once every six weeks, weeks, which is so amazing because, I mean, it was so terrible just to have to go a week in between therapy sessions. And so to the, I, I will always go to therapy, I think, um, just maintenance because it's just not worth it. And because my life is so much better, I am so much happier. And that doesn't mean I don't still have demons that creep up, um, especially, I think, doing things in the public and being a little bit more of in a spotlight. You are, you know, subject to some people will be a little more critical of you. I will say most have been incredible and have been amazing receiving me and my message. But certainly I still have those demons that like to try and get in. Uh, but I, I know who I am now. Uh, I know who I belong to. And I have felt a very strong, divine, intense mission to spread the message of I see you, which is kind of what came next. You know, I had a friend give me a friend that I met through my therapist, actually. She had been on an, her own mental health journey. Same idea. Happy girl, just driven, going to work herself out of this depression and and also had had to just realized that this might be a lifelong battle for her. Well, we met, we, she, we were strangers and I emailed her and she thought I was like trying to sell her like herbal supplements or something. So we met in a very public place with our kids feeding the ducks at a park. And I, I felt so seen by this girl. We just talked and we just connected and we witnessed each other in our stories. And nine months later, she gave me this bracelet that she'd gotten made on Etsy. And it says three words, which you can probably guess what they are. They said, I see you. And, you know, when, when she and I, when we would have a hard day, we could text each other and the other one would just write back, I see you. I get you, girl. I'm in your corner. Well, I ended up feeling this strong drive to, I started a podcast like you're doing now, Jenny. Um, I was at home still with little kids, but I needed a way to share this message that I felt in my veins, in my blood of I see you. And I started sharing my own story and other people's stories of how compassion and connection save and transform their lives the way it did mine. It was really the people in my life through my 20s that were willing to sit with me in uncomfortable spaces. My sister holding me during my panic attack and rubbing my arms, sharing humor with me. I mean, I remember we had this name for me that she and I came up with when I was having a panic attack. We called her Delilah. She was like my evil twin. And so I would come upstairs at her house when I was in the thick of it. And I would say, Delilah's gone. And we'd be like, woo! Like, hallelujah, let's do something fun. Delilah has left. 
the people willing to like get in it with me and not just walk away because it made them uncomfortable that I was hurting so much, not just walk away because what if they said the wrong thing, but being willing to ask, what do you need right now? I am here for you. I will do whatever you need and here. And I don't know that people understand if you haven't been through that, at least I didn't, how life-saving that can be for just one person to do that for you. And I feel like I'm a personal witness and evidence of that. And so I started this podcast and we did over 100 episodes. Jenny, we did a beautiful live podcast with you at that conference in San Diego where we both spoke of how I see you of how compassion and connection saved and transformed your life as you've been through so much. And then I was contracted to write a book called I See You, How Compassion and Connection Save Lives. And that came out last October. And um, it has been just the greatest honor of my life to go and speak to audiences and to give people hope and to help people really regain their mental health and recognize how powerful they can be when they take care of themselves. Julie, this is amazing. I love how in the course of just a few minutes, you've gone from feeling like there is no hope. I will never get out of this. I will never not feel this way. I saw no way out, you said. And now not only have you found a way out through your maintenance therapy, through letting yourself be okay with the medication or just taking it one day at a time, finding the right friends and connections, but not only have you found that way out, you are working tirelessly to help other people out. And I love those three words. I see you. We can't solve each other's problems. We can't fix everything. But I can see you and I can sit with you. We're going to take one more break and come back. And we just want to hear about the phenomenal good that you are anxiously engaged in now. We'll be right back. Okay, Julie, you are just the walking epitome of transformation, of getting into those low, low valleys and refusing to stay there, but also refusing to let other people be left there. So you've mentioned your book, your podcast, those three powerful words, I see you. Can you tell us about what your life looks like right now? You mentioned you're working with educators. You're taking this message, uh, not just in your podcast, but now you've really put it into kind of some in-person trainings, video training opportunities. Walk us through what it looks like today and where you hope it's going over the next months and years. You know, I've spoken at a lot of schools, which has been amazing. I've spoken to a lot of groups of kids, both young, both teenagers, um, and obviously plenty of adults. And I really came to this inspiration, this idea that if I really want to help kids thrive, it has to be the adults around them thriving that are really going to make that impact because I go in and I might talk for an hour in an assembly and I have kids come up to me and they just have the most incredible stories and they are brilliant and they are hurting and they are needing to hear that they are enough, that they are seen. And I just hug them and I just love on them. And I just want all of everything I feel for them to just somehow absorb into their skin. And I realized one day, you know, if I really want to make an impact, if I really want to save these kids the way I wish, maybe things I could have been saved on when I was young. If I could get the adults around them that are with them all the time. So I look at that as the parents and the teachers to really adopt this idea. Of I see you to, to themselves be mentally well and healthy, strong enough that they can then inspire that in the kids that they parent and teach. That's where I think I can really make a difference. 
And so I felt so excited to start. I'm doing a pilot program this year at one high school and one elementary school, and we're collecting data and before and after. And it's called ICU, an enrichment program for faculty. And it is all about the faculty members. And it's not just the teachers. It's the lunch ladies. It's the janitors. It's the administration. It is everyone there that interacts with those students. And it is all about self-care. And so each term, we have a different theme. And I come in and I do a workshop with them. So term one is self-compassion. Term two is embracing our differences. Term three is high-definition thinking. And term four is a conviction to listen. And all of those I talk about quite a bit in my book. And it's really building blocks for seeing yourself first. And then that second semester is how you do that for the people around you and how that creates not just a life where you see kids better, but just a happier quality of life. I mean, I am happier now. And you're right. Like having been in the dark valleys, I can't just leave them. I can't just leave those people down there. I feel like I have to share with what I know now, with what I needed and what other people did for me. And so, yeah, now I'm engaged in this education program and I love it. And they get a monthly video of just applicable ways to use a professional video for me each month. And we're hoping to take it quite big as, as we get this data and as we can show that it is impacting educators and later on that it will impact kids. I mean, I don't know. I have big hopes. I have big dreams and I'm going for it. And it, it feels really meaningful and special. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just like trying to find the time to do the dishes and play Candyland too. That is really <laughs> what I'm trying to figure out balance because I want to be a pretty freaking awesome mom too. So just learning to have self-care and self-compassion myself and make it to the gym when I can. And I feel on fire. Like I just, I can't put it out. So that's, that's exciting. I also have a children's book coming out in April, which I'm so pumped about because I just, I love these little people, and um, it's a story all about self-acceptance, basically, but it's called Broccoli Punzel, and I'm just so excited. The illustrations I'm seeing by the illustrator are beautiful, and that's seen by the same publisher, Cedar Fort Media and Publishing, and I just love how much they've really taken a chance on me. They really believe in what I'm doing, and have just been so supportive, so it's exciting to see the reach get out there. This last week, I was at a women's retreat, and I spoke to women, and it's the same thing as what I get with kids. They come up to me, they hug, they cry, they tell me these amazing stories and you know what I've just learned again and again from all these audiences is just that we are all needing the same thing there's no time for keeping up with the Joneses there's no time for stressing about what your neighbor how they're spending their time there is just no time for that kind of animosity and contention and division we will continue to see suicide numbers climb if we don't choose to engage and be counterculture and I'm seeing people do that and it is so exciting I'm seeing people fight that fight and be happier for it I love this I love the energy in your voice I love that you have found so much hope and happiness in your own life by making your life meaningful to other people's lives and I think that is a huge component of what we talk about a lot here on the show with resilience resilience can't really exist in isolation right? I mean, you you can be as strong as you want, as happy as you want, as, as tough as you think you are. But when push comes to shove, we got to be there for each other. Whether it's just to send that quick text message or to hold you while you cry or to just look in the eyes and say, girl, I get you because this really is hard. I love everything you're doing. And I love that you've decided to try to help the youth by helping the adults in their lives. What a powerful impact. 
And what an important thing to say, you know, the parents, the teachers, the faculty members, these adults that interact with our kids for hours and hours a day, they need to be strong in their mental health. They need to feel they have resources and that they're seen. So I love what you're doing there. Julie, we always ask our guests, what is resilience to you? For me, resilience is being okay with negative emotions. It's being able to sit in all the feelings being able to feel them, being able to talk to them, at least to someone. It doesn't need to be everyone like you and I. We share we share a lot about our journeys openly, and I don't think that everyone needs to do that, but I think that you need to be able to belong to yourself enough that you are comfortable acknowledging the negative things you experience as well and being able to also look for the good when you're in a spot where you can, you know, Finding funny where you can. I think that's resiliency. I think being present, living moment to moment with intention, I think that's resiliency. I think that we can inspire resiliency in each other when we leave space for each other not to be okay. I mean, I talk, you've taught me so much, Jenny, about not fixing it. And I, in fact, I have a chapter in my book called We Can't Fix It, and I share some of our conversations in there about what you've taught me about not trying to fix it and being able to sit with someone and just let them be sad because you're not afraid that they can't get out of it. You have courage and hope in them. You know that they can get out of it. And so we don't need to be terrified when someone else is hurting. We can just sit and listen. And I find that that's more healing. And I find that that is inspiring resiliency is I have all the faith in you that you can do this. I'm not going to try to fix it because I know that you're going to be okay, that you have you have the makeup, you have the support to do it, and I'm going to be that support for you. I think when we, when we try to cover up pain because it's uncomfortable, I think that's, that's driven by fear, maybe. Fear of that. Maybe we aren't resilient enough. Maybe we can't do this thing called life. And I just, all my experiences have, have shown me the opposite of that, that we are more resilient than we think. And, and the fear feeds the failure. I know in my own life, when I let that fear guide, I've already failed. I'm so afraid of failing that it's like I don't even stand a chance. I, Julie, I just love you. Like, I love you so much. I'm so glad that our paths crossed. I've learned so much again from you in the past 45 minutes. Thank you for sharing that definition of resilience. In my mind, I'm picturing a rubber band because, you know, elasticity and resilience. You can have some physical characteristics there. And I'm thinking of what you said. If you know it's going to be okay in time, if you know that there's hope that these negative emotions and this hurt will pass and you'll be all right, then you're not necessarily as bound by the fear of those emotions in the moment. And the visualization that came to my mind was if you've got a strong rubber band and it's being stretched, well, that's okay because rubber bands stretch and then they bounce mm-hmm. back. It's when the rubber yep. band feels crackly and old and worn down and you're worried that it's brittle and going to break with the slightest bit of resistance that you're terrified. But if you know you're basically made of rubber and you can stretch this way and bounce that way and flip over there and it's going to hurt because you're going to slingshot across the room, but you're going to come out okay. And I just think that's exactly what you're helping me learn. And I know so many of our listeners and those who listen to your podcast and your, your teaching opportunities through public speaking and your book, resilience is being okay with the negative emotion to acknowledge it to let yourself sit in it, to let someone else sit in it, but also to leave space that you know you're not going to stay there. I love how you said find the funny, find the funny. And, um, you know, sometimes all we can do is laugh at life or laugh at ourselves, laugh at how hard things are. 
but that it's okay to not be okay because we know in time we'll be okay again. And I think that's what I treasure so much about our friendship is there's days when I feel lost and despondent and like I've forgotten everything I've ever learned and my little rubber band's about to crack in a hundred places. And I know I can call you and somehow you help strengthen that rubber to where I can stretch a little bit more. I can bounce a little bit more. And I think what makes that possible for me to feel comfortable calling you is I know maybe next time you'll call me when you feel brittle and about to break. And it's that reciprocity in our relationships that really feeds that resilience. So, Julie, I love you. I can't wait for the children's book remake to come out. I can't wait till your teaching program for educators comes up to the school district where my children attend school because I know they will benefit from it so much. And I just I just love you. Call me anytime you're brittle and about to break because I know I can call you when I'm there myself. And to oh, all I will. <laughs> to all of our listeners in the show description, the show notes, we'll make sure that we link to Julie's podcast and everything that she's referenced here. Like she said, all the resources we can. We are here to share, to build each other up. We hope you like what you've heard today. We hope you'll go find us on your favorite podcast platform and give us a like, a rating, and a review. And if you're listening and you have a real-life story that you're willing to share or someone you know that you could share their story with us that might be willing to share with our listeners, please contact us at rrpodcast at ksl.com or find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient and Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. We'd love to hear from you and continue sharing these real stories of real resilience. And remember, no matter what you do today, please remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others might be going through in their lives. Take care, everybody. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.